Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I'm talking with Kieran Goy. Kieran is the co-founder and co-host of the Brain Tools podcast, a show dedicated to sharing practical brain science for everyday people. Additionally, he is a leadership facilitator with Harvard Business Publishing. I was actually lucky enough to have Kieran run a workshop for teachers at my school recently. And after looking up his podcast, I realized it was rare to have someone with so much actionable insight on neuroscience also be well-versed on students and school. We discuss what teachers might need to consider when it comes to the following in and out of the classroom. Habit formation and maintenance, focus on the task in hand, memory and what is learned, anxiety and self-esteem, students' sense of resilience, teamwork when interacting with peers. Thanks again to Kieran, who not only offers consistently excellent and concise insights here, but also via his regular podcast that you will find linked to in the show notes below. If you want to be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at Chris Jordan HK. Here we go. All right, Karen. So um, what do teachers need to be aware of? Uh, I suppose it would be at the beginning of the year or the beginning of a term when they're trying to put new practices into place around habits. What do we need to know as a profession from a neuroscience perspective about, you know, how habits take hold, how to introduce habits and how to keep a habit going, so to speak? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question because I think I'm always reminded, and I, again, I don't know who actually said this. Sometimes they say it's Will Durant. Sometimes they say it's Aristotle. We'll, we'll give credit to both of them. But they say, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but it's a habit. And so then the question becomes is how do you actually inculcate those habits with students across time. And I would say I probably lean on something that Andrew Huberman said in the Huberman podcast. And it's a it's a bit of a interesting term, but he uses self-directed neuroplasticity. And what that basically means is you've got to do stuff to change your brain. And it's the quality and the quantity of what you do that ends up actually shaping your brain long-term. And obviously, as you know, when you're a teacher, you're looking at students and people that are ripe for habit change. But as we know that once they entrench those habits in that really formative years, it's really, really hard to shake them. It's why, for example, type 2 diabetes is such a killer in the world is you're telling a 50 or 60-year-old, hey, here are your habits. Can you change them? And it's really, really hard, right? Like, it's really, really difficult to do so. The analogy um, one of my professors once told me is he said, imagine you've walked uh, a road for 60 years and someone says, can you just in a day go back 60 years and walk that, that, that track and change your life? And it's like, it doesn't really happen like that. And so, if I was to get really practical in terms of what it means for a teacher, I think there's two things to think about with habits. I think the first one is probabilistic thinking, is in reality, if we're trying to think about changing a student's habits, which is the end goal, whether that be to ATL skills, it'd be some form of content mastery. The question you've got to ask yourself is what's going to increase the likelihood or the probability of actually changing that habit, of building that, either breaking the existing bad habits or building them. And I think the moment a teacher starts to think in terms of what's going to turn the needle or move the dial probabilistically, it starts to really look at the core of habits, which is sample size. It's like a habit, if you do a habit, you know, one time a day for 365 days, the whole thing is you end up 37 times better. So, I think that's the first thing is like, what is actually going to increase the probability? So, not thinking about it as like a one or a zero, a binary discrete thing. It's how do I nudge the probability 
to quote Hunger Games. So I think that'd be the first part of the, the puzzle for teachers is to start thinking like that. I think very like secondary is then like getting really practical with like Atomic Habits. There's BJ Fogg who's spoken about this. There's How to Change as well as a book. But I really like James Clear's um, four like mastery laws, if you will. He calls them like the four laws of habit change. And he says, you want to make sure you make it obvious, whatever habit you're trying to inculcate, whether it's a skill or otherwise, out of sight, out of mind, insight in mind. So make it like really obvious, make it attractive. So like make it so it actually is something that someone might want to do. Like there's actually some self-interest, there's some benefit. So that might be very simply asking like, what's in it for the student? Like what's actually in it for them? Like what's their skin in the game? Like how can it actually make their life slightly better? Um, I think the third part of it is, you know, you want to make sure you make it like easy to do. So, you know, people will take the path of least resistance. And as you know, being a teacher in a classroom, if you make anything hard for students, path of least resistance is not to do anything at all. So how can you make it as easy as possible? And I think I want to differentiate between two things there, which is something doesn't is not necessarily easy in a practical sense, but it feels easy. Like it's a perception-based thing. How can you make someone make it feel easy and lower that sort of barrier to resistance? I think the last one with any form of habit change you do, whether it's skill development or otherwise, is then you want to make it satisfying. Like you want to make sure that there's some sort of reward mechanism. And, and as you know, from a neuroscience lens, it's all about dopamine. Dopamine's the molecule of more. Dopamine's not about liking something. It's about wanting something more. Like you want it again. And so I think that's how I would probably frame habits for teachers, particularly when you're thinking about lesson plans or you're thinking about a particular skill or a piece of content. I think if you apply those things, then you're more likely to increase the probability of getting, getting to that habit change. That the ETL thing is is interesting. Actually, we've had discussions as a school about because the ETL uh, for anyone who doesn't know the ETL, I think it's approaches to learning. Like framework is, I think it's 150, 100, it might be more actually 180 different little skills. Some of them are quite um, domain specific, like science specific mm-hmm. or English specific. But some of them are what you would loosely call soft skills, like recall information, or I can't remember the exact title, but it's like process something and recall information and that kind of lends itself quite nicely to retrieval practice um which is something that that as a profession i think has exploded in the last 10 years but what really resonated with me then that you you said is like the idea of like well why are we doing it like understanding why you're doing it because i think particularly with students they, they get told what to do day in day out and for the most part they follow instructions you know um because they 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 respect the authority of the teacher and they don't want to be the odd one out. But seldom, seldom can I say that they appreciate or understand why they're doing something. And when it's something as abstract as retrieval practice, that is something which really, I don't know, requires, I suppose, a specific uh, explanation as to why we're doing this in, in the long term so that they can appreciate it. When you say like make it obvious, and I, I do love the book Atomic Habits, I think James Clare, like that, it, it is a fantastic kind of framework. When you say like make it obvious, is that just from like a teacher's point of view, explicitly explaining what the thing is to students in the first lesson of a term or something like that? Or does obvious mean something different to you? I think you're right. I think it means probably a few things. And the first part is exactly what you've spoken to, which is I think it's explicit. That's right. Mm. Like, which is we're speaking about the explicit teaching of skills a lot, as you know, in education circles. And it's everyone knows that, but it's hard, right? Like, Mm. it's hard when you've got a whole syllabus to get through and Mm. you need to get through content. How do you remind yourself that 
long-term, explicitly teaching these skills is probably going to increase the probability of them acquiring the information and knowledge. But mm. there's a little bit of a, let's call it the valley of doom or disappointment, right? Like you're not going to see that for two or three months or even four yeah. months. So I think that that is the explicit nature. I think the second one, and I, I remember actually um, uh, supervising a lesson in a school and I was just sort of seeing what was going on. And I loved what this teacher did and I stole it, is when they were talking about like a skill at the start of a, a lesson, they would actually for two minutes, just ask the students to write down why they actually think the skill is important. That's literally what they'd say. Like, it's very, very simple. Like, why is the skill important? What's in it for you? Like, long-term, what can you see this? And like, they normally do a bracket short, medium and long-term, like benefit relevant to your studies and and beyond. And all they would do is just get one or two students to share the idea. But I think the the fact that that was actually already a lean-in, that you're actually getting the students to lean in. And again, you've got a classroom of 25, 30 kids. Not all of them are going to lean in. That's why I always come back to probabilistic thinking. It's like, okay, maybe you get five students one day, maybe get six students the next day, but that constant repetition across time is where you really sort of inculcate it. So I'd say explicit nature is probably the first component. And then I second, I think the second is then you need to repeat it across time. I know yeah. teachers who have themed it in terms of months and said everything that I do, I'm just going to really focus on this particular skill or skills in terms of whether it's learning or whether it's motivation or self-esteem um, that they think supports the thematic, um, I suppose, content that they're going through at that time. So I think focus is your friend with these things because in reality, how many skills are you actually going to get a student to learn in a year? If there's 155 ATL skills, good luck. Like we're setting ourselves up for failure. It's probably looking at more those keystone skills. Like what are the fundamental first principle skills that have a lot of transferability, have a lot of far transfer that then bracket to those other skills. And I think if we can select those as teachers and get that right, then again, we increase probability of behavior change or habit change downstream. Yeah, 100%. Um, transitioning then to to students, there's something which I have to do once a cycle, so once every uh, seven days, uh, give or take, which is kind of meet with four or five students that are in my form class that I'm responsible for in a pastoral sense. And this is something which I wish I'd had at my old school or every school that I've ever worked at. And you, you sit there with them for anywhere between five and 15, 20 minutes, and you just just discuss a goal that they want to achieve, often tied to one of the ATL skills, or it can be something a bit more personal. Do you feel like there's value in sharing with them that kind of James Clear uh, framework of once they've identified what they want to get better at, and that is tricky within itself, having that reflection process, but do you feel like there's a lot, a lot of transferability to a student who's 11, 12, 13 years old or older, um, using those steps to form uh, a productive habit as well. Yeah, like my bias is probably going to shine through in reality, but I think as we know, it's all about the frame of reference by which you give these skills. So when you're 11, 12, 13, like your self-interest, your wants, your needs, your likes, your understanding of self is going to be clearly different when you're 17, 18. It might not be completely different, but there's a lot more, let's call it social pressure. I think we've got to understand like, the basic question really we're asking is like, what motivates a student when you're mm. 11, 12 or 13? And it, again, there's going to be first principles. And I think that's what we've got to seek for. Maybe it is recognition. Maybe it is a little bit of validation. Maybe it is that they want to do on the, well on their test score for their parents. Like, again, we, we can go through all the different wants and needs, but I think the earlier we get this, the better, because we, we talk about, I like to call them in like critical inflection points, but you can call it critical learning windows, if you will, um, which I know a lot of the literature talks about is the timing is probably the thing that we underestimate the most when it talks about giving skills. 
And ideally, there's a Goldilocks zone, but I don't think that means that you can't nudge students in the right direction. Like introducing a skill maybe when they're 11 and revisiting it when they're 13, you don't really know when the penny drops moment's going to take place. And that's the hard part about teaching that I'm sure resonates for all. It's like, you know, you're doing the right thing. Like, you know, you're trying to create those moments, but unfortunately you are not the judge, jury and executioner of when that moment arrives for a student. So all you can do is focus on the lead indicators. It's the quality and quantity of how you teach. It's the quality and quantity of the skills that you give. It's aligning it with the research. And I think doing that then, as I'm probably going to become boring to everyone right now, increases the chances and probability of it taking place. Maybe that's it started off at four out of 10, right? So you have to roll the dice 10 times, but maybe it gets to five or six. But that across a year or two years or three years, like you can't underestimate that the power of those small incremental gains and you know Carl Vike, the social psychologist, talks about small wins a lot, gathering that momentum. And I think that's so important for kids is to experience what it's like to have a small win. And I think if we focus that to get to your point on getting better at the skill, which is the classic mastery based learning and so on, like getting better at actually a doing it, then then the better. The only last thing I want to add is I think there's a creator that a lot of kids actually like and probably teachers have seen Ali Abdal. And he, you know, was the sort of Cambridge doctor that now is the productivity expert, so to speak. But I love his framework for getting good at something. And I think he says, get going, get good, get great. And it's almost as if like for a student and for a teacher, whether we're learning new skills, doesn't matter your age, I think we underestimate the quantity you need to get to actually warrant about getting good. It's like we we it's sort of like it's that classic immediate self-gratification. It's like, okay, how many times have you actually taught explicitly an ATL skill? How many times has a student actually tried it? Is it five? Is it 10? And it's like, that's not really a lot, is it? So it's like you should probably only care about quality when you get to a point of you actually done it 10, 15, 20 times. Now, the counter argument is Kieran, what about time? And I understand that. But I think getting that in the mindset of teachers and students becomes really important because then your, um, let's call it your goal of success changes. It's like, okay, 10 times, let's let's actually have a conversation then, if that makes sense. So I think that's where I probably sit with these things in terms of those critical windows and the ages. I think you can give it whatever you will. It's just the frame of reference that it changes um, across time. Mm, that's really interesting to consider, yeah. Considering the fact you, yeah, you work with students that are like 10, to 18 years old, that is a, a really kind of valuable consideration. Um, uh, another thing that you've talked about on, on the podcast is the idea of focus. Um, I suppose this is something that occurs when you're making curriculum materials as well as when you step into the class. So with those two things in mind, what do teachers need to be thinking about with regard to the way the focus works in the human mind or the adolescent mind, so to speak, and how to leverage that in both the materials they produce and also the classes that they teach or instruct. Yeah, it's it's a weird analogy to to lend myself to, but I'd say focus, like teachers can probably learn a lot from marketers, which is a, a weird thing to say. But like when you look at marketers and how they're trying to think about it, they know attention is a precious commodity. They know that they need to have a hook. They know that in the first five seconds, someone's going to make up whether they go next, like, and, you know, actually stay engaged with that. And I think when we talk about focus, what we're really talking about is student engagement. Is like, if we've got, if I've got a 45, 50 minute lesson with a student, how do I maximize the chances that they pay attention for all 50 minutes? And it's like, not possible, right? At all. But I think we need to, if we start thinking in that frame, then we can really get to what the core tenets of focus actually are. And so I'd say the first problem I'd say is like, is cognitive difficulty and cognitive overload. So when a student feels like there's too much, and we've probably all experienced it, the emotion that comes to my mind, I don't know about you, is, is overwhelm. 
And when I feel overwhelmed, I, as a student, the probability of me thinking I'm not good enough or having those thoughts with self-esteem or whatnot, or just falling into apathy is really, really high. So again, it comes back to that, you know, we create some threads, like making it easy link with James Clear links very nice to focus. And so on slides, it's like, if you want a student to pay attention to one particular point, make it incredibly easy for that to take place. Um, if you only want two skills or three skills to be the thing that you want to get through all the three pieces of content, make that the focus. And I think that sort of Pareto principle is really important. It's like focus on the 20% and then the 80% will take care of itself downstream. So that's how I do. If I, if I go really into like the neuroscience I think the number one cost in education at the moment, this is a bold claim, so please don't don't snip at me here. I actually think it's switching costs. I think mm. we, like, it's the latent thing of a student in a class thinking about how many distractions are there in a class, uh, students, teachers, otherwise. And even if you're interrupted like 10 or 15 times in terms of your attention, the, the amount of time it takes for you to get back to your peak attention is huge. Like the analogy I always, I always talk about when I'm speaking to students or teachers is, is like a toll bridge. It's like I go on one side and I cross the bridge, I have to pay a toll. I go back to the other side, I pay another toll. And like in this case, the money you're paying is your attention and the switching cost is task A to task B. And I think that's really important to take note of is that we can't make it so that there are no distractions. We can't make it so that students' attention is just maximized, but we can decrease the chances that there are going to be those switching costs taking place. And so I think whenever a teacher's planning a lesson, you can't, you know, focus on things outside of your control, but it's like, okay, if I want to minimize these switching costs, how would I actually structure the lesson? If I wanted people to focus on just this part for five, 10 minutes, how would I do that? Would I have to get their self-interest involved? What about, okay, this is in it for you. Would I have to make sure that there's a really compelling hook? Would I have to use some sort of far analogy to explain it, whether it's through sport or pop culture, to get them actually really grappling with it? And when I was presenting a lot, we were when we train presenters, we were always taught you you don't earn the right to speak to people. So it's like your first five minutes earns you the next five minutes. And your next five minutes earns you the next five minutes. And you, you sort of treat it like that. Now it's really hard, I know, when teachers are seeing the students every single day to like have that sort of uh, let's call it beginner's mindset. But I think putting the focus on that then means you're focusing on those little like micro wins that you can create when it comes to focus. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, I once, I can't remember where I saw him say it, but I remember sort of Jerry Seinfeld saying something like, stand-up comedians are the, it's like the most brutal form of like work feedback you're ever going to face because you're getting appraised every 10 seconds. And I think teachers are not far behind because, you know, you, you can have students maybe in the palm of your hand, so to speak, for two, three minutes and then utterly lose all of them a minute later based on, as you say, like um, uh, task switching or attention switching or, or however that kind of plays out. Um, and I'm feeling it particularly at the moment. We've got all the Christmas decorations and, and stuff up in the classroom and it only takes you know, a 2% change in the environment for the little year sevens or the little, you know, year eights to get utterly and utterly distracted by a bit of plasticky kind of flashy paper that's adorning the walls. Um, so I think, I, yeah, I, a lot of that resonates with me. Um, is is it, how how easy is it to educate students on this particular kind of idea of focus? Is it a, a fool's errand to say to them, your focus is going to get, you know, taken away or stolen by so many different things. This is uh, how you can try and realign yourself. This is how, or is it, is it, is it kind of a lost, um, 
is it a lost hope of of being able to get 10 year olds 11 year olds 15 year olds to understand what happens to your focus in a given classroom and why you need to teach yourself to reroute it because i think even as adults i've heard something recently about adult adhd and the rise of smartphones and how that's affected our focus and i find it hard myself you know when i was doing a master's to stay committed so i don't know like to what extent can you have this conversation with adolescents do you think here so again chris i'm sorry that i'm forever going to be an optimist i dare say (laughs) but i I know but I, i think i think i think you can but again is it is it a fool's errand it can definitely feel like it because i mean like if we talk about um we never really consider the costs of technology in reality, right? Like it's, you know, I know there's a, a guy called Mark Andreessen and he recently wrote something called the techno-optimist, like manifesto, some sort of word like that. And it's really, really compelling. And it's basically saying that the way we're going to solve all the problems moving forward in the future is through new technology. And then you can take Steve Hawking's um, argument, which is like the problems of old technology are being solved by new technology and, and vice versa. And so the, the opinion I take on this one when it comes to focus is I think you can but very much aligned with the the quote by, again, James Clear, and I'm pretty sure it came from the army, but it's like, you don't rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. And so mm-hmm. I sort of like sit there and be like, okay, what's the system? Like as, as a teacher, like what's your system in your environment? And for a student, what's your system? Um, and I think as we speak about it, it's like the only way you're going to persuade a student is taking a longer time horizon, which is hard because, you know, we want to try and change behavior straight away. But like, say we try and change a student's behavior across a year when it comes to focus, it's probably push push and pull. It's like the more subconscious, subliminal things in their environment that you can do, whether it's removing things, as you said, from uh, the classroom, or it's then adding things and thinking about pull and interest and curiosity, because you've got that push and pull um, tension that you always have. I, I just think that it's got to be done across time. So whether it is, um, you know, you try and sell the benefits of being a phone or you actually frame the problem and say, okay, let's do a, a time audit. I remember a school did this and I really liked it. It was like, take your phone out, look at your screen time, total the amount of time that you've actually been on your phone. Then let's extrapolate that across the number of years you'll live on planet earth. And for a lot of these students, they saw that they were going to spend 25 years of their life on their phone. And again, it's hard because a one month to a student is probably one year to like a 25 year old and then with changes across time like we have that perception but like though those are little moments that you can have those realizations and i'm always reminded about socrates as quote and he says the unexamined life is a life not worth living and mm. i'm not meaning that to be dramatic for kids sorry but like what i am saying is how do we create pockets for self-examination how do we create pockets for that self-reflection because we both know this like i, I sometimes get on my phone right and i've like look at my screen time it's like seven hours i'm like i have no idea how this happened um and the zooming out of it is when you need to have those checks and balances i I think so reminders are really important self-examination collective examination one other tool i just want to give on uh the point of focus in say technology is i remember um then after this the students would collate all their results and then the teacher shared the graph and then shared like how many hours per week and how many hours per year and then literally put on the board how many years of your life collectively in this classroom was spent on a phone and it was those types of moments that were were useful not from a obviously you're gonna be mindful of like the oversell and like say get off your phone but it's more the hey just be mindful it's not saying don't use your phone it's saying be mindful um i think of it so not not a fool's errand yet is what i'd say (laughs) (laughs) yeah i suppose what we're sort of talking about there is like that idea of compounded interest 
um, which really doesn't start to occur to you, like you say, until, I don't know, maybe your late 20s, early 30s, maybe even later. It's just like I've got a four-year-old son and to him, a day seems like a year. When I tell him it's Friday and not Saturday, so it's not family day yet, a day seems, you know, so far away to him. <laughs> I think exactly like you just said, a teenager, a month to a teenager is a lifetime. So I think the idea of compounded interest of, you know, what you do every day is 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 not always going to be examined um, because the, the sort of time perspective is so different between uh, an adult or an older adult and a, and a young adult is something definitely worth reflecting on. I love that idea of, yeah, collecting the amount of, time spent on the phone and then extrapolating it over time that is a really good uh, technique um memory um is i'm not sure about i think australia and the uk uh the the whole idea of memory sort of like retrieval practice and this kind of thing is is enormous within education for the last five years i think within the us it, it's burgeoning but maybe not as prevalent other parts of the 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 world i'm not sure but memory is something which seems to have been discussed quite a lot with regard to teaching and this kind of thing from um for for anyone who isn't doing like retrieval practice or isn't doing interleaving or spaced you know um uh, practice or retrieval whatever you want to call it what are the most important things that you've come across, Kim, from like a neuroscience perspective that teachers need to be implementing within the curriculum um, at large on a macro scale, but also on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so I think the way I'd frame this is I take us back to, I think it was like the 1880s, 1890s. And what was, he's, he's called the godfather of memory. And this is probably more cognitive psychology than neuroscience per se, but Herman Ebbinghaus. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the whole forgetting curve. And essentially what he did in a nutshell, for those that don't know, is he got people to remember uh, a list of nonsense words, so gibberish, because he didn't want to have any form of association, and we'll we'll get to that a little little bit later. But um, and yeah, what he basically found is that there was a really clear forgetting curve, and that there were two core tenets of of memory, which is durability and flexibility. Durability is like obviously how long you remember something for, and flexibility is the number of contexts that you can actually remember that information. And I think for a long time we focus on durability. So you can talk about rote learning and saying, okay, practice retrieval, let's get this into my head. And I remember when I was delivering seminars and I'd ask, okay, to students in a room, and I kid you not, like say there's 200 students in a room and I ask, how are you going to, mem- how would you memorize like y- your notes or whatever it might be? And it's like, okay, I'd read through my notes. That's like, like yeah. the first thing. And obviously, as we talk about that pendulum, pendulum of active versus passive, obviously really, really passive, but it was durability. I need to get this information in my head. I think later on, this is probably where I'd speak to teachers a little bit more, is flexibility that there is this beautiful dance between flexibility and durability is that in the more contexts that you can remember something, the more likely you actually are to get durability and vice versa. And so that's then the ode to more interdisciplinary learning. It's also more like examples. Like, you know, I like my analogy is points of failure here. It's like, if I want to cross a bridge and I've only got one bridge I can cross over, well, then if that bridge is done, I'm in trouble. I can't Mm -hmm. cross that bridge. But if I've got three bridges, I've got four bridges, then the ability to get over the bridge or get to the other side is obviously increased because I have multiple points of failure. And I think that's what flexibility is all about. It's I have different ways to actually get to the other side. And so I think using that, let's call it metaphor, when it comes to like practical things a teacher can do, whatever a concept is, can I give 
three or four different angles to that one concept, whether it's an analogy in football or it's an analogy in, I don't know, like pop culture, as I've said before, or it's just a practical example um, from, say, a textbook or a problem that a student's doing. I think that's one of the things that can help a student actually have those multiple points of failure would be the first point. I'd say the second one on like really practical thing is like semantic learning, which is connecting what we don't know with what we do know. And I think that links really nicely with flexibility. But what it really comes to is the use of information. It's like if you say to a person in a like a student in a classroom, how many times have you used this piece of information since the lesson? And maybe they say once, maybe say twice, whatever it is. But if they don't actually use it at least once or twice in that critical window, say 24 hours or 48 hours after, then you're, you're pretty cooked. Like it's it's going to be really hard. And I think that comes into my last point for teachers is paradoxically, and humans are a bit like that, the most important tenant of memory is forgetting. Like we are ultimate, we're good learners, but we're the ultimate relearners. Like we're incredible relearners. And so our the number of exposures we have to that bit of information becomes really important. And so like if I was like a comedian to take your analogy earlier, what do really good comedians do? They have like one recurring joke that happens throughout the one hour set and they keep coming back to it, the call to action. I think it's really similar in a class where it's like, okay, maybe you have that one or two concepts, but if I can refer to that within that class and, you know, at the start of the next class, build that as a, as a habit then a student's going to get three or four exposures to that piece of information, and that might increase the probability of it downstream. I think the purest example of this, I mean, it's not too far away from the Ebbinghaus example of like nonsense syllables, but obviously as an English teacher, um, you might be teaching vocabulary, like explicitly, which again has kind of seen a rise in recent years, the idea of teaching specific words like tier two or high utility words. And the flexibility thing is so big. Like th- that resonates with me so uh, strongly in terms of I, uh, I've i had like a year seven class who they'll learn like an incredible word, like, I don't know, indignantly. And they can tell you the definition. They can use it in a sentence. They can do this. They can do that. They can tell you the adjective form, all this kind of thing. And then when you read it in a sentence, maybe, I don't know, three months later, and it's like she, I don't know, indignantly looked at her mom. They, not all of them can necessarily recall the meaning because they've been drilled in that way, that rote way of this is the definition, this is the example I always go to, this is the adjective form, this is the noun form, this is this. What does it mean in a sentence? Oh, I don't know. It's just that kind of flexibility is, it can all, I, like, the first time it happened to me, it almost knocked me out of my tree. And I was like, oh, my God, like I've, I've done something wrong. But I, yeah, it, 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 it's so important that that retrieval practice thing of it's not enough for them just to be able to remember what you taught them. They need to be able to then adapt and sort of uh, apply, I suppose, to new contexts with or without your help. That that's something which I'm still working on now. I think that's really important. Um, and then, so you you mentioned before about speaking to students about it with regard to, you know, how would you go about learning or relearning this thing? Um, how kind of vital do you do you think it is to introduce these kind of memory skills to students who are going off to do exams in in year eleven or year thirteen or, or whatever? Yeah, I'd say mission critical, which is, I think, as you said, memory, like in rote learning has been punched a lot. Like yeah. it really has. Like I think we've gone the other side of it. And like if I'm being level, it's like what are the core tenets of memory, as we said, it's durability and flexibility. 
durability. If you interact with something a lot, you're probably you're more likely to remember it than otherwise. There's obviously the quality, which is the techniques that you want to use. Then obviously, as we've spoken about, there's flexibility. So I'd say like it not as early as you can, because obviously there's critical windows, but I would say the classic case of like, you got to be really clear on what's in it for them. Like you're going to be like, I always remember the value proposition for students was teachers care about time. Students care about time too. So if you, you could always say, Hey, what would you, would you be interested in a technique if instead of taking an hour to learn it, it will take you half an hour. Mm-hmm. And like, they're gonna be like, yeah, please tell me this right now. Cause I want my half an hour back. And I think it's like, coming back to that self-interest point, like what's in it for them to open them up to these skills. But then very, very practically, like what I would say as a very, very small win that most teachers can do if they can afford like the one minute in the class is at the end of the minute, just give that space to be like, I want you to review your notes or turn to the person next to you and explain like the two big yeah. concepts from it. One minute, because I know there's so much content to get through, but I think that then subliminally is training students to be like, look what we did. Like I remember the penny drops moment for one teacher was they did that for a month without telling the students. And what they then did is they said, hey, what have you been doing at the end of each session? You've been actually teaching. You've been doing teaching, which is Feynman technique. And you've actually been doing practice retrieval and you've gone over it. You've done 30 minutes across a month and it hasn't been any extra time. They looked, it obviously increased in terms of the, the number of things they were to remember. But I think it's those like little Trojan horse techniques you can do to students yeah. where it's like when they don't know, they're doing it and then they finally have that mic drop from a teacher and like wow you you incepted me like you got me and it just it just has that moment of like real gravatas um yeah. but yeah i think i think these memory skills are super super clear like as you know for us even you know as as teachers and educators like we probably memorize a lot of the stuff because we're teaching it like we're, we get to teach it in different contexts so that's probably the only other thing i'd add is like everyone knows the whole Albert einstein quote of you know, if you can't teach it to a six-year-old or in this case, it's a grandma and, and they understand it, then you don't know it well enough. And I think yeah. it's creating those pockets of like one or two minutes of just teaching or of explaining um, that I think can, you know, compound as we've spoken about across time. Yeah, it is such a gener- uh, very good generative activity, just asking them to close the notebook and recall something that they've learned 10 minutes ago. And it's, it is not to catch them out and not to chasten them, but it, it is amazing kind of seeing their faces kind of drop in terms of thinking, I've literally just learned that I've written it down and I cannot remember exactly what it like. It, it, yeah, I think if it's done every lesson, like you say, and you don't make a big deal out of it over time, you can then sort of re- go back to it and say, remember that kind of strategy that we do at the end of every class. That's how you could be, you know, spending your time uh, revising for exams, et cetera. Um, if we go on like a slightly different um, uh, track then, um, looking at something a bit more, uh, I suppose it's sort of pastoral uh, related as opposed to like curricular, but anxiety and self-esteem. Um, it, it, we, you know, we can, we can plan amazing curricula with all this kind of um, disciplinary or, or um, substantive conceptual knowledge but ultimately if the students are anxious or the students have low self-esteem i wonder if they're ever going to kind of be able to take much of that information on so what do teachers need to know from the outset whether it's planning for next year or stepping into the classroom about anxiety and self-esteem and its relationship with learning yeah like this is again another paradox of human humankind is that the neural circuitry of excitement and anxiety are on the same axes and like, it's like, what, why does it have to be on the same axis? But it just is, right? Like it, it feels the same, but obviously has very different consequences. And so I think 
first one is just the, the basic question is like, if I was to do a, a, a feeling audit, right, of all my students in the class, how would they be feeling? Right. Like, and I know there's a lot of um, check in um, software that is now, which is like, are they a one or are they a 10 or whatever it might be? But I think that's the first point because a lot of the times students don't have the self awareness yet. They are developing it to really understand the emotions that they are feeling. And so, when you, as you spoke about with vocabulary and teaching in English, like if you don't understand like the emotional vocabulary and you can't describe how you're feeling, it can also feel very, um, circular you can feel very very lost as a student and so what at least i feel like i've noticed across time and this is just my observation is not a widening but there's a a, definitely a teacher student empathy gap that goes both ways because a student never asks how's my teacher feeling as they're teaching this class but they're not like oh have i had a bad day or are they feeling anxious are they feeling excited are they feeling overwhelmed and vice versa as a result teachers are probably not necessarily all the time because they've got 30 kids 25 in a classroom being like how are all these kids feeling and yeah. so I, I sort of sit there being like, as a baseline, just in terms of basic humanity about anxiety, just note that most people, when they come into a class, whether it's a class that they don't like or whether they've had a bad day, they're probably going to the base of primal instincts of fight, flight, or freeze. Just as a general thumb, just like just the acknowledgement that they might be in that mindset. And we need to create probably some safety, some psychological safety in order to do so. And I think probably teacher vulnerability is the way to get that started from what I've seen. It's just like I like when teachers, and this is where it's the hard part. It's like the same as leaders. It's like, you know, vulnerability is useful, but authentic vulnerability shouldn't be a tool. Like I'm not going to be like, I'm going to be vulnerable in this class. So then that makes my students vulnerable because then it's like, that's not really authentic and that's not really teaching them the, yeah. the nuts and bolts of it. But I think like, at least in our experience, I'm sure you've had teachers when they have been involved and said, hey, look, I'm just going to be honest with you, I've had a bad day or like, this is pretty tough. I really want to make sure this is really important to you. And I think it's starting with those words I feel. At least then that creates the acknowledgement that this can be said in the environment. And again, obviously be mindful that some students just won't resonate with that. But I would say that that would be the first one. I think second one for teachers to be aware of would be the tool of like emotion granularity is I saw this done in a class once and whether whether it's within a specific subject or it's just ATL specific, it doesn't really matter. But I really like the idea of having all these different emotions on the board or I can do the emotion wheel and just creating uh, a link between the word and the feel, like where you would feel it. Like when you feel anxiety, where would you actually feel it? Um, when you feel excitement, how does it actually make you feel? And like creating that, I know this is such a weird analogy, but it's like golf to me because like with golf, like when you're training for it, they make you exaggerate um, the action because what you'll end up doing is uh, like 10% of that actually exaggerated action. And I think that's the case with like emotion granularity is like get really, really specific, exaggerate the specificity of how you're trying to describe things. And then, you know, when you have those moments where you might be struggling, it might be that you can actually label it. And I think that's then being aware of it for teachers is then probably cognitive reappraisal. And that's a big thing in CBT. Um, and kind of behavioral therapy, it's basically just getting people to reframe things in terms of their goals or their wants or their needs. It's like, I'm feeling X. Uh, I'm feeling X as a result of Y, uh, Y, Z, whatever it might be. Um, and then the reframe is, okay, like, how can I actually use this to propel and move forward? And I think I, I sort of sit here on this quote. I think it's from a book by Ray Dalio called Principles. And he says, pain plus reflection equals progress. Now, Ray's a lot smarter than me. But I'm going to say, Ray, I think you're missing some components. I'd say, it's, I'd say it's pain plus reflection minus rumination 
plus deliberate practice equals progress. Mm-hmm. And I, I just say that because I think teachers and students alike, we can actually ruminate more than we reflect. Well, you know, the classic case of we have one narrative that spirals to another narrative, another narrative. And there's a term I've been speaking about with other leadership facilitators called narrative congruity and narrative alignment. And it's like, if you were to take all the stories that each student or each teacher is telling themselves prior to a class or in a class, do they align? And they probably don't. And I think that's the acknowledgement of like, everyone's telling themselves their own particular story. And that story can sometimes prevent them from actually the learning, teaching and learning experience. And I think just acknowledging those things are important. So I know it's a classic case, but it's just awareness. It's having starting a conversation, creating psychological safety and vulnerability that then increases the chances that maybe one or two students might start to speak up and, and so on moving forward. Yeah. And I, I I I do think because it's such a I wouldn't I wouldn't call it an invisible um phenomena, but it, it does come back to that praise that you that you had before where it's like you don't rise to your expectations you fall to the level of your systems and it does require a system i think that vulnerability is a practiced approach yeah it is it is a system it is an operating system as is you know checking in with students in a systematic way is is a system it's you know you can you can hope to kind of notice if a student's down or a student's despondent or a student's withdrawn and obviously make time to speak to them after the class but even then it might be that they start the class withdrawn and then they get better and you think oh okay i don't need to have that conversation anymore and just the hidden lives of you know what's going on within the learners heads i i yeah i think that like so much of what you said there in terms of um making the implicit a bit more explicit would be would be a really valuable thing to do um again this is something which is i suppose a relatively soft skill or a a pastoral thing but the idea of resilience so i guess anxiety self-esteem resilience these things are tied up quite closely together but Hmm. how how do do teachers rather bring about resilience in students some students seem sort of genetically predisposed to resilience despite the fact that it's probably the iceberg thing of like we, you know, we can only see what they're like on the surface. We don't see all the past events that's that's brought them to this kind of resilient mindset. Whereas other students seem to give up after you know the first five seconds of trying something. So how what part how how do we tackle the the important um, uh, thing of like resilience in the classroom? Yeah, wow, well, that that's a tough one, isn't it? So like, because like in reality, we as like adults and teachers, we struggle with resilience, don't we? Right, like bouncing back when things have gone tough. And I think so. I'll give I'll give one. Let's call it neuroscience principle, and then I'll probably digress into um, more more narrative driven things. But I think things are still important. Like the core thing about resilience that all neuroscientists and cognitive psychologists will talk about is stress inoculation. And stress inoculation is just another fancy word for saying exposure theory, which is like. You've got to actually be exposed to stress to then deal with it. And I'm sure you, you know, the whole stress curve where you've got you stress, which is, you know, positive stress and de-stress, which is not so good. And then the Goldilocks zone in between. And it's another case of for students, for humans, for teachers, you'll want to try and get in that Goldilocks zone. Because as you know, and I'm sure every teacher can relate to this, a student who experiences zero stress is like super, super hard to actually motivate and get moving because they are experiencing apathy. Like it's not even because their emotion regulation is so high. It's because they just don't care. And there's a lot of different narratives that come. I don't care. And because if I try and I fail, then it hurts more than if I don't. There's all those different narratives that can come into it. Whereas, you know, you stress is that nice positive um, 
system where it still hurts, it's still difficult, but you can actually, um, I suppose, build your muscle and your resilience muscle across time. So again, I'm back uh, a scientist in me, but I think it's it's very much exposure theory of how many times has a student been exposed to a hard thing. Mm. And if I reflect on my life personally, it's like I, I, I'm i trying to create a list of all the hard things that I've gone through and maybe it totals 10, 15, 20 and hard it can be relative. But I think the one thing that I would say is voluntary hard things, like voluntary suffering. It's like yeah, this is going to be hard, but do it. And this can actually help you downstream to build resilience. And that's why like a great mechanism has always been sport for certain people. But I think outside of sport, it's just the acknowledgement, I think, for students. If you as a teacher know that it's going to be difficult, I think tell them. (laughs) Because it's, I think, Tim Ferriss has this quote, and he's a a fellow podcaster of ours, even though he's obviously a lot bigger than us for sure. (laughs) But he he says, um, in the face of uncertainty, people will choose unhappiness. And that resonates with me for students because, like, if I don't know what's going to happen, then path least resistance is either just to be unhappy or just not care. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if I say, hey, this is going to be tough, like this problem, this topic, I think it's actually a little bit harder, right? But let's focus on lead indicators. It's the quality and quantity of what you do. We might move, for, move past it. We might not, but we obviously need to lean into that. And I think it's those moments where in the sandbox you're practicing those, those difficult things. Um, is obviously an absolute cliche because everyone sort of knows this intuitively, but the science backs this up um, in- incredibly well. And, you know, there's all that sort of, um, you know, dopamine, dopaminergic rewiring, serotonin rewiring that takes place when you actually do hard things. But again, we've got to balance that because resilience at the moment can be under threat because there's so much cheap dopamine coming out. And like one of the core things about reward for the human brain this is something for teachers maybe to think about is the best rewards are those that are unexpected. So, again, I come back to my golf analogy. For those that play golf, golf is an incredible example of this because you have no idea when you're going to hit a good shot. Like, you might think you do, but then you finally do, and it's the unexpected reward, and you only remember the one or two good things. And I think we want to think about that in terms of education, which is unexpected rewards are useful, but they come from doing hard things and not realizing, oh, we got through it. Oh, this was great. Oh, it's that that realization that you can actually push, push through. And so, like, I don't know, Winston Churchill's quotes just, I don't know, they always bounce around in my head. And he says, like, success is not final and failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that really counts. And I think it's like, how can we create those opportunities for students to continually push through and realize that, you know, focus on those leader indicators, focus on the quality and quality of actions that can then build your resilience across time. And so, whether that becomes a, you know, a failure audit. It can be like a hard thing audit. I'm voluntarily doing this. Um, I think that's probably where it starts. Mm, I think I've, I've heard them described as like just desirable difficulties in education circles before, just the idea of that like proximal zone of development um, and just pushing them like one, you know, one step at a time and things like that. I mean, again, like the world of sport is such a good analogy for it because sometimes like, my wife like just does not like doing any sort of cardiovascular exercise, hates it. And, you know, I'll go off and sort of do a run and, and she'll say, like, how long was it? I'll say, oh, I don't know. Like, how, how, many, how many minutes was it? I don't know. Like, I don't know the distance. I don't know the time. And, like, one day I sort of decided to look at how long it had been. And when I told her how long it was, she was like, that, that blows my mind. I can't understand how 
you could run for that long for whatever. Whereas for me, it's obviously like a completely normal, and it wasn't anything major. It was probably like, you know, 10K or something like that. But that is kind of what's going on in the minds of the students, isn't it? Where for some students to write a paragraph is an elephantine task. It's just enormous kind of ask if you're, uh, particularly if you're sort of writing in a, in a language that is not your native tongue and that kind of thing. So I think, um, yeah, that 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 idea of you sort of in, in introducing a an appropriate amount of stress and then reflecting on how you felt before, how you felt during, how you felt after is is so valuable. Yeah, I think that's really important. Particularly, I don't know if you'd agree, Karen, but I do feel like the world that we live in now and and, and the world that the, the the kids that I teach have been born into and my own children have been born into there's so much opportunity for just avoiding stress there's so Mm. much opportunity to whether it's through what you eat what you drink what you look at what you you know we're living i I don't want to sound like you know too sort of joe rogany or whatever although i do enjoy his podcast but i don't want it, it seems like we're living like quite comfortable lives if we choose to and it goes back to what you said before in terms of like unhappiness. Like when you're faced with a certain amount of stress right, or, or challenge, you'll you'll move away from it and ultimately make yourself um, unhappy. Like that that that's a major consideration for me in terms of yeah, like how how easy it is and how like I worry sometimes when when I assess students challenging work. I think are they ready to do this because I see them arriving on the school bus. They're looking at the phone. Um, they're waiting outside to come into the phone class. They're still on the phone. And that's like quite a cushy, unless they're practicing their Chinese or they're practicing their math problems, mm. or which they could be. Um, but if they're on something else like, you know, TikTok or um, uh, or Instagram or something like that, that's a cushy a cushy existence that, that they're, they're indulging themselves in. And it's, it's quite a hard sort of... Um, pull to be pulled out of those um those experiences and into the world of learning where there is going to be a certain amount of stress um but i don't know hopefully hopefully like you say like the future technology will will help us with uh, present technology when it comes to our over-reliance on it um the last thing i wanted to ask you about actually was um again I suppose a soft skill, but one that is is just as important of all as all the ones that have come before, and that's around teamwork. Um, I'm someone who, for context, maybe eight years ago, I was a head of department, and whenever I used to go and watch, uh, observe lessons, I saw you know emerging teachers setting a lot of group work, a lot mm-hmm. of teamwork, and it would be. You know, lesson would start and maybe five, 10 minutes into the lesson, it would be, okay, here's the task. Do this in your teams for the next 15, 20 minutes. And I just, I, I saw no value in it whatsoever. I, I saw one student doing all the work or all the conversation. Usually there'd be one student that was completely detached from what was going on. Um, I, 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 yeah, I was a massive group work skeptic. And then, you know, I, I sort of looked into it and, I saw these kind of ideas around, you know, one student is the scribe and one student is the secretary and one student is the emperor. I don't know. They have all like these different roles. <laughs> I still wasn't massively convinced. Um, 
But I do think teamwork is a really important skill. I'm just not sure that I know how to do it well. So what, what, what do we need to know as educators, putting the curriculum together, designing group work tasks, and, and obviously importantly, um, observing these, these, these teamwork or group tasks in the moment in the classroom from like a, a neuroscience perspective? Yeah, like I don't know why this is my another analogy, but again, project-based learning has been such a, a buzz, buzzword for mm-hmm. pedagogy and so on. And, you know, the research again, like the research is sometimes compelling, sometimes not. But one of the core things that sits underneath all PBL um, literature and research is said it's, it's a nice idea, but teachers really need to know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Like you need to be trained to do so. You need to know the skills. Mm-hmm. I see. I think this is the same analogy when it comes to teamwork with students is like it's students go into teams, but the major assumption that's made is that students know how to work in teams. Yeah. <laughs> they actually, they know how to like, uh, and we in the workplace, so like, you know, my, I also do you know, like a lot of leadership and management facilitation. Like I, I wouldn't have a role or a job if we were all great at working in teams. So I, I sort of sit here thinking like, what are the assumptions that we are making about students in working in teams? And so again, I would I would approach this from like you can use the Keystone mental model, um, or you can use Pareto's principle. Like, what are the twenty percent of the problems that are causing eighty percent of um, those those symptoms downstream? And I sort of sit there like there are probably two main assumptions in teamwork. I think when students do group work, the first assumption is that they will know how to communicate in that team. Exactly to your point, um, we in board meetings or in teacher discussions or whatever, there's assertion bias that takes place all the time, right? The person who's with the loudest voice will get all their ideas out, but that doesn't mean that they're the best ideas. You might have one or two that are actually sitting back, observing, having having much better ideas. So I think that's the first one is like they know how to communicate well. And I think the second assumption is that they are all aligned on what is actually the outcome and goals of that mm-hmm. teamwork. And the I did this recently um, with a, a pretty large large company, and they literally got their their goals, what they thought were their goals, and I got everyone to write it down on paper. And there was like about twenty of them in the room, and then we compared them. We spent like literally two hours comparing them. Not one aligned. No, like not, not 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 one aligned. And I think like I'm not saying that to be like oh I, I know it all and so on, but it's just totally fair. It's like one of my core values is entropy. And it's like the world favors disorder over order because it's more probabilistic as an outcome. And if you've got a group of four or five students that are sitting there, this order is everyone knows how to communicate. Everyone knows what the goals are. Everyone knows the values. And it's like, cool, probabilistically, probably not, not going to happen. And that's okay. But then we, then we actually have the opportunity to think, how do we move that disorder? So I, I, the thing I've seen work really well with teamwork in a classroom setting that teachers have done is before they set teamwork, they make it really clear, obviously, explicitly what the goal is um, and they get everyone to align on that. They then give like, I suppose, a few minutes for people to align on how they're going to actually approach it. So there's a bit of a mixture of agency with some core principles of saying, you know, instead of everyone just talking, first and foremost, I want everyone for 30 seconds to write down their ideas on paper and then right. everyone can go around and share those ideas and then the best idea can win. And I think then third is like, as we said, the, I think the core, let's call it values, um, of the discussion. I know that when people have done long-term teams, they've made a team contract, which I really, really liked. It was like, here are, you know, if a company or a school has their values, it's like, we're, as a group, here are our values, here are our working styles, here's the way that we're going to communicate for longer-term projects, obviously. And then they would all sign it at the bottom. They get some like actually agreements to it. And I think 
it's those little things that, you know, align with Louis Pasteur's quote, which is like, you know, uh, an ounce um, of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I think it's like before starting the group work, it's thinking like what could go wrong? Like what does bad look like? And let's avoid that at all possible by looking at like the one or two or three big bad reasons why teamwork wouldn't work. Solve those. And then maybe downstream the teamwork and the team bonding activities and the group work will be a lot more um, impactful and useful for the students. Mm, I, th- I think this is where that ETL framework comes into play as well. I think that there, there is an explicit one about, you know, working collaboratively with others. And like, funnily enough, we just we just finished the Horizons Week um, where the kids are out going, you know, doing extracurricular activities. And I went to a sort of film production um, place with, with, with by like a really amazing provider. I didn't really have to do much except observe. And it was fascinating to see two groups put together completely at random like they could have chosen to be with friends if they if they wanted to i think but because they didn't really know each other they kind of got lumped in together and it was literally what what you're talking about now the guys at this uh, film production um uh place did exactly what you just said they sort of they set out the goal they asked them to reflect on you know what issues are you going to run into and it was these weren't uh, sort of older students. They were sort of, you know, year year nine, year 10. So roughly about 14 years old, 15 years old. Um, and it, yeah, it was fascinating to say now, albeit it was over the course of a week and they were together all the time. So the conversation was ongoing as opposed to an hour on Monday, an hour on Wednesday, an hour on Thursday, so to speak. Um, but yeah, it, it speaks to a lot of what, what you just said there in terms of making sure everyone's aligned. And what was what was most surprising to me was that (laughs) some of the students had like such strong ideas about what they wanted to do what they wanted the film to be and where they were going to go and what it was going to be about and when it was discussed amongst the group and they were like you know that's not going to work because of this this and this rather than react in a in a petulant or stubborn way it was like yeah yeah fair point I thought (laughs) they're taking feedback a lot better than I as an adult, I've taken feedback in the past <laughs> in terms of like a professional setting. So I think that process is, I, I yeah, I completely agree with you in terms of that's something that I often skip over. I'll tell them what the goal is, but it's like, now go out and do your research instead of having that quiet reflection time to think, where are the roadblocks? What are we aligned on? What are we not aligned on? And those different kind of impediments that, that, um, will prevent or be preventative um, rather than needing to be remedied by, you know, me probably as a teacher further down the line when they all fall out. So, yeah, that's amazing advice. Thank you very much. I love um, that. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the last thing that remains for me to say, Kieran, is thank you very much for giving up um, your time today. As um, as I said before we started recording, I came to your podcast a couple of months ago after you did a training for our our school or our foundation. And it is a rare podcast in the sense that I I, I can think of, uh, you've mentioned a few of them today, like Tim, Tim Ferriss being one of them. I can think of podcasts that kind of dabble with neuroscience, but it's often interleaved with a load of other topics, which whilst interesting, I'm not... I find myself getting sort of 30 minutes into them and thinking, uh, this is this is not really for me. Whereas every single one of yours, 
as an educator and as you know as a dad and as as a human being i suppose i take something from them um particularly the ones where it's like you know the six top tips or the four top tips they're particularly good when i've only got sort of 30 minutes in 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 the car on my way home so thank you very much for your time today and thank you very much for all the kind of content that you're putting out there into the uh the, the the podcast sphere so to speak thanks so much chris it's been an absolute pleasure talking shop and education with you and yeah look forward to the next one